The future belongs to those who see the possibilities before they become obvious. Welcome to Fireside Chats Without the Fires with Neil Toff and Paul Catherell. Fireside Chats Without the Fires, Friday, March 5th, Season 2, Episode 7. Today is a day of mixed emotions. We talk a lot about emotions in customer experience, and I'll say why it's mixed emotions. One, I'm incredibly happy, or as Paul likes to say on Fridays, buzzing, <laughs> because we have a sensational guest. This is the gold standard here. We're going to introduce John Goodman in just a second, but it's also mixed emotions because we're going to talk about rage, customer rage. We're thrilled to have him, but we're going to talk about rage. I don't know two more uh, polar opposites uh, than those, uh, but we will get into it. Today we have the John Goodman. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Uh, John Goodman, in case you're not following him on LinkedIn, you should be. John is the Vice Chairman of Customer Care Measurement and Consulting. Uh, he has done some sensational work in, uh, in the customer care field. He's going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the customer rage study uh, just in just a minute. John, for those that aren't necessarily familiar with you, what else have you done? Tell, us, tell the audience um, the things that you are known for and what you have authored and produced and the amazing content that you have shared with the community. Okay, great. Thanks very much. Uh, we actually started out as an ad hoc student group in the basement of Harvard Law School about 45 years ago and have yet to get real jobs. And uh, one of our very first projects was for uh, the U.S. government, where the government hired us to uh, look at complaint handling in the government, but oh, by the way, look at 100 private sector companies and by the way, do a cross-section survey of the U.S. population to see what do people do when they have problems. And what we found was that if people have a problem and don't complain, they're less loyal. But if they have a problem, complain and are satisfied, they're actually much more loyal. So that actually was the genesis of the use of 800 numbers for customer service. And two other things that came out of that same set of, of studies was uh, the adage that it costs five times as much to get a new customer as to keep one, and that twice as many people hear about a bad experience as a good experience. And that White House study has now been replicated uh, ten, nine more times, and we now call it the National Rage Study, which again is a cross-section survey of the U.S. population to see what do people do when they have problems. Uh, our other claim to fame is that we can have developed economic models to quantify the payoff of better customer experience and really to portray customer service as a word of mouth management process, that if you can get your word of mouth to be good enough, you don't need to do a lot of sales and marketing. You let your customers do your selling for you. This dates back to 1976. What was the world like in 1976? Market, and I'm sorry, I'm going to ask a, maybe just a really ignorant question. Market research was an industry that existed yeah, then? Yeah, market research was basically how do we develop a better widget 
and uh, to sell people and how do we do advertising to control them into buying it, as opposed to, I think we really founded the area of customer research. And there still is a, is a huge amount of confusion uh, in, between market research and customer research. Market research is the hypothetical of how do I sell you something else? Mark, and customer research is how do I keep the customers I already have? Are plugging the hole in the bottom of the bucket so that we aren't having hemorrhage of existing customers. And at the beginning, the research was totally focused on complaint handling. Then we started noticing, hey, we're gathering all this data, let's feed that back to improve the process. And that became total quality management. Then in the early 90s, a guy named Joe Pine wrote a book called Customer Experience. And the only problem with his book was that his, his seminal example was the Nordstrom story, which is this lady brings two tires to a Nordstrom's and says, I bought these tires at this location. I want my money back. Well, the only problem is Nordstrom's never sold tires. But the backstory was there used to be a tire store at that location. But the customer is always right. So they gave her her money back. Now, while that really motivates service people, Finance people heard that story and said, that's ludicrous on the face. And so uh, in some ways, the Nordstrom story really uh, did, a, did a disservice to service because the finance people said, well, this is all fluffy, you know, goody two-shoes stuff. Then in the early 2000s, IBM came up with CRM systems that would personalize offers, and, and that was Customer Experience 2.0. And then I wrote a book called Customer Experience 3.0, which said you need to be proactive, preventive, and engaging when appropriate. Now, the first company that was really proactive was Amazon, because they were smart enough to know that when you ordered the book, uh, your next question was going to be, when are you going to ship it? When am I going to get it? And they built that into the software. So they proactively answered that question, and therefore they got very few phone calls uh, asking those questions because they had proactively answered it. And so then also you want to be preventive, uh, educate customers to stay out of trouble. And the reason I say uh, engaging on a occasion is trying to create an emotional connection with a New Yorker in a hurry is a really bad idea. So there are certain customers you do want to create an emotional connection with, and there are others who just, you know, give me my product that I'm leaving. So what are the, let's call it top three or four takeaways from the customer rage study? By the way, if you haven't read the customer rage study, um, I, the, the version I get is right online. You just do a Google search, customer rate study, and you get, it takes you right to uh, a, I believe it's a free document that you can download and, and consume and read right from there. Is that the correct way to, to get access to it? That, that, that's one good way, or else come to the CCMC website and we can give you a much more detailed version of it. So, but, so just kind of, t yeah, top, top, you know, high level, what are the three, four, five takeaways that uh, our audience should know from the rate study? Well, first of all, we're actually finding that the number of problems that customers encounter, and the way we ask the question is, have you had a serious consumer problem in the last year? And it has been going up continuously. It's now about two thirds of people say they've had a, a serious problem in the last year. Uh, and the types of problems have evolved a bit. It was 
almost totally technology in 2017. Now technology is still more than half, but financial services is, is becoming a major category. And one interesting thing is that the two major complaints people have is performance. My internet, my cell phone, my computer isn't, isn't working the way I expected and overcharging. And uh, that again could be cable, internet, but also financial services. But that is endemic of what we see with poor marketing and poor customer onboarding. The challenge is that marketing and sales has never wanted to be transparent Oh, if we tell them really what the limitations on the, uh, the the data download is, they may not buy the product. So let's not bother telling them that. Uh, and then also when customers buy, very few companies do an effective job of onboarding the customer, educating them on how to use the product and what the limitations are. And uh, the basic thing that most companies miss is flagging who needs to be educated and then motivating them to want to be educated. And, and the problem is nobody reads the directions anymore and nobody reads their contract. I did a survey of about 250 CEOs of small and medium sized companies, and they said over a third of their corporate customers really had never read the contract and didn't understand what they bought. That's the formula for unpleasant surprises down the road. So the onboarding is to warn the customer on what the, the potential issues are. For example, at, at Rider Trucks, they, their sales rep might say, lease 100 of our trucks and your uptime will be fantastic and life will be beautiful. To his credit, the group VP of sales says, but let's talk about when one of those trucks breaks down we're gonna spend two hours trying to repair that truck before we give you a new one because refrigerator trucks are $200,000 a copy and we haven't got a bunch of them sitting around. So it's setting proper expectations and companies do a really bad job of that. Uh, what is the, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, and uh, then the next interesting thing that we found was that uh, we asked people, what did you want when you had your you filed your complaint? And they have two logical things. I want you to fix my problem and give me my money back. But they also wanted an apology. And only a third of people got an apology. And it doesn't cost any money to give an apology. Two other things they wanted was, I want you to explain why this happened. And I want you to assure me it won't happen again. And what we have found is almost all service systems are ill-equipped to deal with those last two things. In many cases, I can fix your problem, but I can't tell you why it happened. And I sure as heck can't promise you it's not gonna happen again. Now we have come up with one interesting finesse of that, which is I can't promise you it won't happen again, but we have a continuous improvement process and I am going to report this situation to continuous improvement, which then gives the customer hope that maybe it won't happen again and that the issue is being taken seriously. So a question here, if I look at um, uh, kind of the, the, the executive summary, you see here in 1976, your first version of the study, 32% of respondents reported experiencing a product or service problem in the prior 12 months. We fast forward to 2017, that jumped up to 56%, so close to doubling from the original 76, 1976 study. And your 2020 RAID study, that same 
question reports 66% of respondents experienced a product or service problem in the previous two months. So we have, in effect, the problem has gotten it's 2x now. It has doubled. Right. Yeah, and wow. I think I think a lot of that has to do with the sophistication of the products and to a degree with the sophistication and expectation of consumers. Uh, back in, in, quote, the old days, uh, people sort of expected stuff to break down. But now the, the whole marketing approach is, you know, the, the, there are certain car companies that say 100,000 mile warranty, everything is covered. Uh, and so the attitude is, well, this should never break. It should run forever. And I should never have any problems. And by the way, the, the, the technology has gotten incredibly sophisticated. Uh, we're now finding in, in auto companies that the biggest single point of pain is I can't understand my dashboard because uh, I, I, you know, I've got navigation, entertainment, uh, all this, you know, it will park itself, it will come, you can call it from the parking lot and it will drive itself over. But people are really almost afraid of a lot of that technology. And yet no one except my wife has read the 200 page manual that comes with it. Uh, and they, so, so they are bound to have more problems and, and, and issues. I'm curious about the use of the word rage. Rage, I think, is about as strong as it gets when it expresses, I think, a, a negative sentiment, negative feeling. Um, is rage a word that customers are actually using, or have you assigned the word rage to express the level of reported frustration? I'm just kind of curious how the selection of the word rage uh, was decided upon. Uh, we thought rage was a good shorthand for being really upset for, uh, in many cases, raging at the customer service reps, swearing at them. And, and in fact, uh, every once in a while, we will ask the question, you know, did you use foul language? Did you actually swear at people? And, and what we found was that the airline or that the industry that, that provokes the most rage is the airline industry. Uh, the next one is the technology industry, and, and two-thirds of people, uh, more than two-thirds of people, exhibited rage in both of those situations. And your other interesting trivia fact, just for fun, in 2017, I stuck in, what's your political persuasion? And what we found was independents swear more than Democrats who swear more than Republicans. Wow, I so want to go and, and and discuss that, but I think for for the sake of keeping our <laughs> listeners, we won't we won't touch that one. But that's that's really interesting. Um, Nate, John, no, you mentioned that. Paul, sorry, yeah, sorry, John. I, I have a question about the contract. So you say that um, it's clear that uh, a lot of customers don't read the contract, you know, regardless of which company sent it out. Where do you think the onus lies on on that contract? But is it the customer's responsibility to to delve into the contract, or is it more on the company to make the contract a little bit more user-friendly? Because sometimes the contract can be 20 pages long, or is the sweet spot somewhere in between? Does that make sense? Well, it's it's like for all the uh, uh, agreements that you sign every time you sign on to a website you or, or get a new software, I'm sure you read the 30 pages uh, oh, before yes. you click agree. Uh, <laughs> No, you've hit on a very important thing, which is that there are simple ways of warning the customer about the things that are most important. For instance, there's an insurance company that says, they have a cover letter that says, welcome to the family. There are three things that most people 
don't notice about their policy. And the first one for homeowners policy is we have a valuables limitation. And that says that if your house burns down, uh, you're only covered for $5,000 worth of jewelry and guns and other valuables. Uh, sales and marketing hated that letter. Oh, we're rubbing their nose in these three limitations. Customer reads the letter and says, oh, I have more than $5,000. Can I buy a rider? Can I give you more money? So in fact, by disclosing this to the customer upfront, you end up making more revenue and you eliminate that when the house burns down and you then reject the claim, you're a bunch of crooks, you slid it by me. Uh, and so it's a win-win, but getting sales to accept that is very hard. I had this the CMO of one of the biggest financial service investment companies laugh nervously when I gave that example. And he said, you know, it's really not in the DNA of marketing guys to talk about problems. And that's a fundamental issue that we run into is marketing and sales don't want to talk about the limitations. But nowadays we're actually finding, and we saw this at USAA, that if I warn you about the limitation, we it's a delighter. And people said, you cared enough to warn me how to stay out of trouble with this product. I can now trust you. So it creates trust and transparency. And in fact, as a marketing ploy, I would pick at least one issue and sort of upfront talk about it, which then says, hey, these guys are transparent and trustworthy. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks, Jonathan. That's great insight. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Neil. Oh, and the other example is Avis, every once in a while on a contract will have in bold print, uh, we know you hate surprises. Here's the fine print that you need to worry about. And they both nice. do that one paragraph in bullet points in bold. Nice. Very nice. Well done. Cool. Thank you. John, you mentioned four, in your study, $494 billion are at risk to businesses as a result of customer rage. Are, are companies conscious of this? Do they really understand how large this problem is? Or is it just kind of like what you give the example you gave maybe of your CMO is kind of sort of out of sight, out of mind? Yeah, it's out of sight, out of mind. Uh, uh, one of my, my favorite phrases is no news is, is not good news. Uh, and bad news doesn't get better with age. But uh, we basically find that uh, most companies have not done a real economic model of overall how much revenue they're losing due to attrition, or the more actionable thing is how much revenue are we losing due to each point of pain? And we have found uh, that once you quantify that, all of a sudden you provoke action. If you can quantify the cost of inaction, you provoke action. And one of my favorite examples is we we're working with Toyota over a decade ago, and I went to them and, and I said, this engine hesitation problem is gonna cost you over $50 million in the next year. And that was, oh gee, that's terrible. Let's set up a committee and study it. And I learned something. I then said, for each month you don't take action, that's $4.6 million down the rat hole. It got fixed in three weeks. The minute you quantify how much revenue we're losing per month by not doing something, you then provoke action. Could you offer a few other examples of companies that are getting it, that have, have done the actual studies and the work and can, are, are quantifying it? We always hear, of course, about Amazon, some of the usual usual good suspects, Amazon, uh, Zappos, um, 
Southwest. Um, you know, there, there's always the, the usual suspects we point to, but maybe there's some others that you're working with or have come, come across that we're not necessarily aware of that do get it and that are doing a good job in the way that you've just described. Yeah, I think one is is uh, Motorola and uh, Cisco Systems both have done this, and Motorola has actually allowed us to use uh, some of their old data. It's it's quite dated, so so they're happy to let us use it in in my book, where we actually have done an analysis of the points of pain and how much of the revenue is at risk uh, by by uh, each problem. And what's interesting in the Motorola chart is that the second most prevalent problem. Uh, was uh, delivery within a desired time frame. And they were about to spend millions of dollars raising inventories until we looked at the number that said, well, how much damage does that problem do? And the answer was not very much because customers say, well, I'd like to be able to get it in two weeks, but as long as you tell me you'll definitely deliver in four weeks, I'm willing to live with that. So I'm not going to not buy from you simply because you're not delivering as fast as I ideally would like. So what we find is that the analysis of revenue at risk by points of pain, by each point of pain, allows you to identify what's really a big payoff versus what's a squeaky wheel that doesn't deserve grease. And there are a lot of squeaky wheels that people hear about. And fixing it isn't going to get you very much in, in the way of payoff. For instance, one interesting area that, that we're seeing a big debate on right now is we're now finding that more and more consumers are posting on social media when they have a complaint. And I've run into three or four companies, including a major cosmetics company that has said, we are going to respond to every single post on any platform, anywhere, anytime. I am not convinced that that's necessarily going to be a useful activity. Uh, when somebody's really upset and they're filing a complaint, uh, probably that would be great to respond. A bunch of the other stuff that's put up there, I'm not necessarily sure that, that that's cost effective. So that's what another reason to, to do an analysis to decide what really is cost effective and what isn't. I think the, the deep dive into root causes, you give a great stat in the study. It takes 2.9 contacts to resolve a complaint. That speaks to effort. There's a lot of yeah. effort that customers must exert to get their complaint communicated, addressed, and at best resolved. At best, if it gets resolved, right? Yeah, and a lot of a lot of them don't. And and a lot of that has to do with the empowerment uh, that the frontline employees have. And uh, we're finding that uh, the real root cause is the supervisors. Supervisors are still in the traditional sheriff mode that you as a frontline rep will not color outside the lines. What we have found is that what works much better is what we call flexible solution spaces. We first did this at American Express, where depending on the, who the customer is and who caused the problem, there are four ways of handling this issue. Use your best judgment. And all of a sudden, the rep can tailor the response to the customer. And Paul Zak from Claremont College has uh, recently published a great article in the Harvard Business Review uh, on trust. And what he basically, he's a neuroeconomist, if you can get your head around that. Uh, and what he has done is taken blood from the brains of, of thousands of employees. And he has found that when employees are in a flexible, high recognition environment, 
they have much more oxytocin in their brain and they love coming to work. They're, they're much more uh, flexible, less stress. And the correlation with I love coming to work is 0.77. So basically giving people the flexibility to handle the issue the way they, based on their common sense, the way they, they think they should, and assuming that they've been given decent training, you're going to be dramatically more successful and you will have a much, much higher resolution rate. Wow, 0.77 correlation. That's interesting. This talks to employee experience, by the way. Uh, well, as and, you and treat the employees, as is, as, sorry, as you as we treat the employees is as they will treat hopefully the customers, right? Exactly, and we actually have an article entitled "Treating Employees as Customers." And uh, one thing we're now exploring is that uh, we we do a employee frustration survey which says, what are your frustrations in trying to give good service to your customer? And what we have found is that the employee points of pain frustrations overlap customer points of pain frustrations by about 70%. So if you fix the internal point of pain, you also fix the external point of pain, you get a twofer. And so, a big thing on that is is the empowerment. It's providing the, the appropriate information. And it, I got to go back to cu customer onboarding and, and honest marketing because the big frustrating thing for employees is digging out of a hole where the customer was told something by sales and now service has to say, well, that's not really quite the way it works. And well, but uh, why was I told this? The real answer is, well, they lied to you, but I can't say that. And it's very frustrating for employees. Of course it is. Two more questions for you before we delve into our, our last third of the show. Um, the last customer rate study was uh, was published in 2020. I'm not sure the timing of it, but now all of a sudden we have this thing called the pandemic. What do you believe the results have been during the pandemic, have things continued as bad? Have they gotten better or have they gotten worse? I think in some ways, uh, from what I've seen, uh, employees are be giving, being given a lot more rope and flexibility uh, out of, out of uh, necessity, I think. And so I, what we've actually seen in some companies is that customer satisfaction is actually going up. Uh, and uh, also, uh, we're finding employees are significantly happier working at home in many cases. And there is, is one, one company we've worked with uh, that is actually now working with us on a delight study. It's called VIP Desk and they are an outsourcer, but they have had uh, their whole staff decentralized working from home for the past 10 years. And it's interesting uh, to, to not stereotype, but they basically are all middle-aged women uh, who are unflappable and they've got 10 years of experience and they achieve incredibly high levels of satisfaction. They're given, in, you know, tremendous uh, flexibility. And so we're actually finding that more and more companies are moving to that model, which actually I think is going to deliver higher levels of, of satisfaction. And people are going to have to be more effective in, in giving that flexibility because you can't, do long distance talk to my supervisor as, as easily anymore. And in terms of customer rage, do you think the customer rage has improved during the pandemic or has it gotten worse? I mean, remember, uh, we've got 
much larger volumes because it seems so many more people are transacting, especially online. But we've also had shipping delays. We've had inventory delays. Um, has that led to increased customer rates during the pandemic? In, in some ways, yes. Uh, it, it's sort of a, a two-pronged issue. Yes, there, there are things that are being delayed, uh, but people at least have a somewhat clear, believable explanation as to why it's happening. And it's not just you know company incompetence. Uh, there there is a bunch of stuff going on. The the, the postal service and everything else is you know, having great difficulty. So we're actually finding people are are being being a bit more forgiving. Uh, but there is frustration uh, with companies that have promised uh, great bandwidth and and in fact have run up against systemic limitations where uh, one of the biggest things that we've run into is we're all streaming seven movies a day and streaming movies is is a real band hog so what uh some of our clients have done is said if you want to watch this movie at 7 p.m start downloading it at 4 p.m so it'll be fully downloaded when you're ready to look look at it now that implies there's a limitation to the system and so marketing doesn't want to talk about it but it is a very simple fix that eliminates a whole bunch of of the issues uh so so people i think are adapting and and in a lot of ways are, are being more forgiving in a lot of ways final question before we go into that last third what is the role you believe of automation in hopefully addressing customer rage. Does it have a role? Um, it, it can both provoke it and, and eliminate it. Uh, what, what we think that uh, automated intelligence, AI and, and speech analytics and such are good at is handling the predictable, simple stuff. Uh, what they can do is handle a bunch of what I call the dumb questions and trivia, thereby freeing up the staff to handle the more difficult stuff. Where the technology gets into trouble is when the technology tries handling a difficult issue, fails, and then keeps trying and trying, which then drives you crazy because the voice recognition says, I heard you say, no, that's not what I said. I heard you say, and what they need to do is the first time the technology fails, it says, okay, let me get you to a human being. And so the technology is good for the simple, predictable stuff, but the minute it gets complicated, that's when they have to say, okay, the tech didn't do it, let's get you to a human being and get you to someone in a reasonable period of time. Another place where technology is really helping is the virtual queue, where you call up and they say, the queue is now seven minutes, you have two choices. You can hold on for seven minutes and we'll play funny messages to you to try and entertain you, or we will call you back in seven minutes and then your name comes to the top of the queue and they call you back in seven minutes. And meanwhile, you've been able to go to the bathroom and, and get a cup of coffee. And we find that that virtual queue technology almost completely eliminates the unhappiness with waiting because you're not having to sit there and wait, you're able to go do something else and multitask. It, re it reduces overall effort. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and so that's why, and, and the same thing should actually apply in, in employee environments also, which is why we are now uh, developing the customer effort, I'm sorry, the, cons the employee effort 
as a parallel to customer effort. Let's switch into the final third. Paul and I love to ask our guests three common questions, and I would love to hear your version of a common or common plural CX myths that you would like to take an ax to and just bust wide open. What would those be? Okay, uh, the first one, I, I actually have two. The first one is perfect processes deliver perfect service and satisfied customers. That's wrong. You can do everything you intend to do exactly right and customers will still have problems because 20 to 30% of all problems are due to customer errors, incorrect expectations and failure to read the directions. Uh, my favorite example is, is Clorox got not a complaint, but a helpful suggestion a number of years ago. Why don't you make Clorox taste better? The specific suggestion was cherry flavored because people brush their teeth with it and it does whiten your teeth. Also whitens your esophagus. And I don't know what it does for your breath, but, uh, uh, and truth, truth be known, it's sodium hypochlorite, it won't kill you. But right out of the bottle is not a recommended use, even though, uh, Colgate whitening strips are sodium hypochlorite. But in any case, uh, there is no product you can't put out there that some customer is not gonna be too dumb to misuse. So you can do things perfectly, but you still need to have the education and you're gonna need a service system. Uh, the second myth is no news is good news. Uh, this makes the assumption that, gee, we hear from all our unhappy customers, we're not hearing much, so everybody must be happy. What we find is the vast majority of customers don't complain, uh, and it's due to fear of retribution. This is especially true in healthcare. Uh, when mom is in the hospital, uh, and I'm unhappy with this, the service she's getting from this hospital aid, I am not gonna complain about that person because she's still taking care of mom. And God, you know, God forbid she do something bad to her. Uh, also, I don't want to sour the relationship. I believe it won't do any good, and I don't know where to complain. So there's a whole bunch of barriers to people complaining. And one of the key things companies have to do is, is have a banner on their website that says, we can only solve problems we know about. Tell us if you're unhappy. Super. CX quotes. Give us some CX quotes that mean something to you. And, and I've had the advantage of seeing what you're about to share with us. And I love this, not necessarily because of where it comes from, but, but where it was taken from. I've never seen someone uh, take a quote from this particular source. Share with us what your CX quote would be. It's Jeff Bezos at Amazon. And it was, uh, I was lucky enough to buy 100 shares of Amazon a while back. And his, his shareholder to letter uh, in April 2018 said that one of the things he intended to do was scale the company, including, he said, failures need to scale. We're going to have some multi-billion dollar fails because if we don't fail big, that means we're not taking risks and we're not experimenting enough. And this is a fundamental problem most companies have is they are afraid to experiment and have any failures. And uh, one company that, that did a great job of this at Wegmans, the, the well-known supermarket chain, their, their senior VP of, of customer service and experience, basically would, she would come up with ideas and she'd work with the, the operating store. And she said, I'd like to try this experiment and you're gonna get credit if, it, uh, if it's a success. And if it fails, I'll take the credit. 
uh, but we we need to keep experimenting with stuff to find out what what's new is going to work. And most companies are absolutely afraid to do any experiment that might fail. And so this, I think, is why Bezos has, has been able to grow Amazon exponentially, because he's willing to try crazy stuff, and, and some of the stuff doesn't work. But the Harvard Business Review actually reports that Amazon does over 10,000 A-B tests a year. And, and the, by the way, another thing that, that customer experience people need to do is they need to uh, ally themselves with the quality and customer insights people, because the quality people are the ones who are used to doing experiments, rapid prototyping, and the customer insights people are the ones who can tell you what the payoff or, or the damage is of, of the results of the experiment. So we have found that the people who are most effective at, at this innovation is, is an alliance of customer experience, quality, and uh, the customer insights people. Love it. Risk-taking, testing, comparison uh jeff bezos oft quoted we i don't think we've ever gotten a cx quote from a sh letter to shareholders so that was a, an interesting uh source to, to pull it from super let's wind down to the final third of the final third your cx hero of the week well basically uh i'm i'm elderly enough that i uh qualified to get the uh the covid uh, vaccinations and I went online in the District of Columbia expecting a bad experience and actually found that there was a model neighborhood health center uh, was connected with Seabury Resources in another part of town. I drove over there again, sort of leery about what I was going to encounter and found that there were a bunch of people standing in the parking lot and they were taking people in 18 at a time every 15 minutes. Uh, they had people spaced. They proactively educated people on here's what the process is going to be. Okay, you sit there, you sit there. Uh, and it went incredibly smoothly so that everybody had been vaccinated in 15 minutes. We then sat there and chatted for 15 minutes while they made sure nobody had an adverse reaction. And then we, we left. And for the second uh, inoculation, it worked exactly the same way. Completely smooth, no effort whatsoever. And uh, this, this again is in, in uh, one of the, the, the not great parts of town, but it, it just, it worked perfectly. And so the, the government on occasion does work well. It's great to hear. It's great to hear of a local success story. We don't always hear about lo the local guys. We hear about the big national guys, the, the global ones, the national ones, the big players, but every now and then the small, time, small town hero will come through and shine. Nice to hear. Paul, how do we wrap this up? This is a, this is a sensational session. We, we, we painted many brush strokes in lots of different areas of this, of this masterpiece yeah. here. Honestly, Neil, I, I don't know if I've got the words. Um, John, I found your discussion, the, the interview really, really insightful. And um, I've learned quite a bit just from, you know, being luckily being part of this podcast. You know, I think you're probably the important thing is don't brush your teeth with Clorox, but oh, yes, exactly, exactly right there. <laughs> don't yeah, I'm just going to take away so much information that prior to this this, this recording, I I was unaware of, and I work in the customer experience industry, right? So um, it's a wonderful. I think you've been a great guest. Thank you so so much for freeing up your time and spending it with 
um, you know, the likes of Neil and, and, and myself. I'm, I'm very honoured. Thank you so much, John. Not the actor, not the actor. Right. And and uh, I'll do one last plug. Uh, my latest book is Strategic Customer Service, which came out last year, and it's coming out in Japanese in April. Uh, wow. So if you need it in, in Japanese, it'll be available. So. Perfect. The book you can get, we assume, Amazon, or is there another yes, place? Am Amazon has it, and Barnes and & Noble and others. When can we look forward, hopefully, to the next edition, I don't know if edition is the right word, of the customer rate study? Is there another one planned? Uh, well, it's probably going to be in two years, but we do have, coming out in probably three months, uh, the delight study, which is going to be what what are cheap delighters you can do for customers? So, so uh, the, our, our client VIP desk said, you know, we don't have that many raging customers, but we have high-end customers that are delighted, and we'd like to figure out what are the best ways of delighting customers. So we are actually going to a large sample of customers to say, uh, what has a company done to delight you? And then we're going to identify the full panoply of, of delighters and by the way, Steve Curtin has written a book, Delight Your Customer, and uh, he's, he had seven ways. We've now come up with about seven more. So we've got 14 ways of delighting customers, many of which are real cheap delighters that give you a 20 or 30 point lift in, in satisfaction and uh, tremendously more word of mouth. Super. We look forward to hearing about it. Those are uh, great practical tips and ideas. It's amazing to go from talking about rage in one conversation and at the same conversation towards the end to talk about delight. It's a big contrast. Um, may we all delight our customers, our clients, our stakeholders. Uh, I am delighted to have uh, been able to host you. John, thank you so much for your time, for your generosity of spirit, uh, for agreeing to join us on the podcast. And uh, a final note to the, two final notes to the audience. If you're not already doing so, please follow John download the rage study, read it. There's things that we can all benefit and be aware of. Pay attention to effort, pay attention to the, uh, what we're putting our customers through and why we're generating such a level of rage. We got to get better in this. Um, but this is a, a, a wonderful resource. Uh, thank you so much, John. Once again, we hope to have you back at some point, if you would do so, would love um, to. we'd be honored. Thank okay, you. Great. And again, the and the final note to the audience, if you liked our podcast, please rate it. Give us a review. Give us a rate. We're not asking for a five-star review. Well, kind of. Uh, if, we would love it if you would review us. If you are so moved to give us a five-star, please do so on Apple Podcasts. Uh, but if you have other comments or feedback, we'd also love to, love to know. We want to provide a low-effort, satisfactory experience uh, for the audience. Thank you so much. Fireside Chats Without the Fires, Friday, March 5th. Once again, uh, guest extraordinaire John Goodman concluding. Thank you, audience. Thank you, John. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, John. This has been another episode of Fireside Chats Without the Fires with Neil Toff and Paul Catherell. Follow Neil and Paul on Twitter at Neil Toff and at PaulCat72. Podcast feedback and topic suggestions are always welcome. Thank you for listening.